Body. Good. All right, if you got your Bibles, let's open them up to Genesis chapter 1. And you'll probably just want to, we're going to start going through the, the whole chapter uh, 1 of Genesis today, so you probably just want to uh, leave that open. We're going to kind of move through that verse by verse. We'll be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 19, and the title of our lesson this morning is The History of Creation. <clears throat> the History of Creation. Now, as we, if you were with us last week, if you're not, I would invite you to go listen on the podcast, but uh, as we saw last week, there have been numerous theories put forth uh, to try and reconcile the um, Genesis creation account with the quote-unquote fact of an old earth or an old uh, universe. We saw that there's something called theistic evolution, there's something called the gap theory, and then there is something called the day-age theory. But as we saw last week, there are numerous problems with all of these uh, theories. First and foremost, they introduce death into the world before sin, before human beings come along. And of course, that, that's just theologically unsound. Either those theories are wrong, or Romans chapter 5 is, is completely wrong. Secondly, in order to try to rectify an old universe with the creation account, they, they try to read long ages into Genesis 1. But the fact is, if you study the Bible and you go look at Jewish scholars, and they just say the Bible means exactly what it says. There's nothing in the Bible, in Genesis, anywhere to account for eons or, or billions of years or anything like that or, or evolution. So consequently, <clears throat> those theories have to look at Genesis 1 and basically deny the clear, straightforward language that is sitting there uh, staring us in the face. In the end... The Genesis account is what it is. You remember Hebrews, we say it week after week. It is by faith we understand that God created the world by, his, by the word of His power. And so the Genesis account is just sitting there saying, this is how it is. It is clear, it is straightforward, it is honest, and uh, it says that God created everything you see in six literal days. I believe that. I believe that with all my heart. I don't believe it because... I've got proof, I believe it, just because I've got faith. And at the end of the day, it's the Bible that this is, this is God's Word or it's not God's Word. And if it's God's Word, then we, we abide by it, we believe it, and we, we trust in it. So this morning, we're going to begin to take Genesis at face value, and we're going to believe what it says, and we're going to begin to walk through it and see what happened in the history of creation. So we're going to begin in day one, I think... You'll find this interesting. I know I saw some things that I had never seen before. I've read these. I've read Genesis one numerous times throughout my life, and and but when you really stop and study it, things begin to kind of jump out at you. We're going to start in day one. Let's begin in verses one through two, and I'd invite you please follow along, and uh, in your Bible there it says this: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, as day one begins, we find the earth in this very uh, unique condition. We said this last week. Think of it 
as a lump of clay on a potter's wheel. Everything that you need is there. All the matter has all been created. It's all there. But it's without form and void. In, in other words, don't think of it as this big misshapen lump. I don't think it was like that. I think the words try to convey that it was unorganized. It was undeveloped. It was uninhabited. I think it was probably a, a, a round, nice circle. But the fact is, it's just undeveloped. It's, it's unformed. Um, but I want you to notice something. And this is going to be important later on. The whole earth is entirely covered by water. And not just a little bit of water, deep water. Psalms 104, 5 through 6 says this, He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. So on day one, this earth is created, but yet it's completely covered by the abyss. It's completely covered by these deep, deep waters. Okay, again, I got no idea why it was done that way, or, but that's the, what uh, Genesis 1, 1-2 uh, uh, tells us. Um, and it says the Spirit of God was hovering. Now, we all know that verse, but what does that mean? Well, the same word is used in Deuteronomy 32. This is, by the way, this is also written by Moses. And he says this, 32, 10, and 11, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest that hovers over its young. That's the same uh, Hebrew word that's used right there. The analogy here with this eagle is you've got these little baby eagles, right? And you've got this mother eagle and she's hovering. In other words, they're sitting there. They can't defend themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't fend for themselves in any way. They are utterly dependent on this parent to take care of them, to, to, to raise them up. This, this is the exact same imagery that is used here in, in Genesis. It's the exact same word for the Spirit of God hovers. And what this is telling us is that God's Spirit is over this earth and He's, he's superintending. In other words, without Him, nothing happens. But He's superintending, He's guiding, He's directing. This is His work. This isn't something He just steps back and says, well, let's just see how this turns out. No, this is, this, is his, this is his baby. He's going to raise this thing up and form this and, and, and inhabit this thing that he's creating. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, we, this is where we kind of run into our first little problem. If you're to read ahead, which we will in a, in a few minutes, if you're going to read ahead, you're going to find out that the sun is not created until the fourth day. I think it's verse 16. Oh, I'm not sure. But if you read ahead, you'll find out the sun and the moon and the stars are not created until the fourth day. But on the very first day, God says, let there be light. So where does the light come from? Right? Now, there are some possible answers that have been put forth. I'll give you some of them. Uh, our friends from the Schofield Reference Bible, which we... Uh, brought them up last week, um, they said this, the sun and the moon were actually created in the beginning. The light, of course, came from the sun, but the vapor diffused the light. Later, the sun would appear in an unclouded sky. That's the Schofield Reference Bible, which was published in 1909. So what they say is the sun was actually created already, but if you were on earth, it was so foggy, there was so much vapor, so much water that you, you couldn't see it. Everybody with me? And then on the fourth day, the, you know, the app, went the, everything kind of cleared up and all of a sudden the sun uh, appeared. The problem with that is that if you go look at verse 16, I, I think, is that anybody looking at it? Is it 16? 
It says the Lord God made. He made the lights. That, so that, that doesn't just say they appeared. It says he made them. He, he created them. So I just don't think this holds uh, much, uh, much water right here, so to speak. I, 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 don't, I don't understand how they could, could come up with that. Um, somebody else said this. Some believe that God created another light source before he created the sun. In other words, it, it could have been just some other light source. By the way, I, I, I did a little study on light, and I was going to include this in here, and it just it started just boggling my mind. <laughs> so I just said, I can't go there. Um, you know, light is an amazing thing. If you ever just go home and Google what is light and then try to figure it out, you just you can't figure it out. It's, these, it's, a, it's an electromagnetic wave. And the weird thing about light is light is this wave that travels, but then it hits your eye, and in your eye there's a chemical reaction with the cornea and the lens, and it says, oh, that's green. That's I mean, it is an amazing thing. Without your eye, light, you can see, I mean, your eye kind of does all the work, and so these two things have to kind of kind of work together. But light is actually created three ways. It can create it through nuclear energy, which is the sun. It can create it by electricity, which we see in lightning. And it can create, be created by a chemical reaction, which is what we see with fire. So God has all these different ways to create light. If he's not, he doesn't just have to rely on, the, on the, a nuclear energy like in the sun. He can do it any way that he wants to. So some people believe he created another uh, source. John Whitcomb, in his book, The Early Earth, said this. God created a fixed and localized light source in the heaven in reference to which the rotating earth passed through the same kind of day-night cycle as it has since the creation of the sun. So he says it's just another source. We don't really know what it was, but God created another source. Again, we don't know. The third option is that God himself was the light. In Revelation 22.5 it says this, talking about the new heavens and the new earth, it says, there shall be no night there, there shall be no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. So in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sun and moon and all that, because God himself will provide the light. So if you think about it that way, if there's not going to be any need for sun in the new heavens and the new earth, then it's certainly conceivable and possible that when God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, that he was the light. He was the, the, the light that he created. Whatever the case may be, we don't really know because the Bible doesn't, doesn't tell us. But here's something I want you to understand about this, and this just blew me away when I really started thinking about this. The very fact that Genesis even talks about light coming before the sun is good evidence of divine authorship. Because no human being would ever sit down and write out that the light came before the sun. That would be inconceivable to human thinking. They would have no, they would just never, they would never do that. Donald Chittick in his book said this, It was inconceivable to pagan thinking that life could exist without the sun and its light. Pagan religions worship the sun as a source of light and heat. Now watch this statement. The Bible is unique and stating that the sun is of secondary importance. You see, the fact is, God seems to be making it clear from the very beginning that the sun is secondary to himself when it comes to light. Jesus comes and says, I am the light, right? God, 1 John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. John Calvin says this, The Lord bears witness right out the very first day 
that he holds in his hand the light which he is able to impart to us without the sun and the moon. So I just think God goes out of his way in the beginning to say, I'm going to create light before the sun. Don't ever think you're dependent on the sun or the moon and the stars for light because I'm the light. And he just does that right out of the gate. And I, like I said, I, I can't believe down through the years, you know, unless God had, you know, a lot of people say, well, people have edited the scriptures. Well, if you were going to edit the scriptures, you would edit that out because it makes no sense, right? But, it, but it is, this is God-inspired scripture and it stays, it stays in there. Verse 4, And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light for the darkness. Now this is the first time that God uses the word good. This will happen very many, you know, several times as we go through Genesis. But this is the very first time that he says something, he pronounces something is good. And what he's saying by good here is that it is conducive or it enhances life. This is good for life. This is conducive to life. This is healthy for life. And he pronounces it good. So with this, so on this very first day, you've got light separated from darkness. By the way, this means the earth starts rotating. Everybody with me? Because that's how we get light. That's how God separates light and dark. So we now know that we've got a, not just a misshapen or a, 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 um, an undeveloped, undeveloped earth. We've got a rotating earth now that's separating the light from the darkness. Verse 5, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Notice here that it is God who names the light and the darkness. Now, you see, in the Near East, at naming something is an act of sovereignty. If you name something, you're saying, I've got sovereignty, I've got dominion over that thing. And God immediately calls the light day, and he called the darkness night. In the Babylonian creation account, which is called Enuma Elish, when the writer in that day and age wished to say something didn't exist, he would say it wasn't named. That's, that's actually how they said something didn't exist. So the idea of something being created and named reflects the sovereign dominion of God. Now let's move on to day two, verses six through eight. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse and it was so and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. I remember as a kid reading this, and I just could not understand this. I'd read it again, and he said he separated waters from the waters in this expanse. And uh, one day I read the New Living Translation, and it made a lot more sense. I want to read this to you. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that's what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heaven. And God called this space sky. And evening and past and morning came, which was the second day. So the second day involves the creation of the, of the atmosphere. Now we all kind of know what the atmosphere is. this layer of gases between us and outer space. And it, it commonly contains what we would just call air. Um, it's got a lot of different gases in it, but we just call it air. It surrounds the planet. Um, it, does a, it, it does a lot for us. Obviously, it, it provides breathable air so we can survive. But it also protects life on Earth by other ways. For example, it, it absorbs the radiation from the sun. So we, you know, we all know you go out there and you'll get stay out in the sun too long and get sunburned. Without the atmosphere, 
you literally would get sunburn. You, you, you'd, you'd burn to a crisp. Uh, it warms the surface, keeps the surface of the earth fairly uh, warm through heat retention. It balances out the night and day temperatures so we don't have, you know, minus uh, 100 in the, uh, at night and 100 plus in the day. It, it balances things out. That's all because of the, of the atmosphere. Um, I was kind of reading this, and I was wondering, well, how far do, do scientists say the atmosphere goes up? Uh, there really is no boundary line, which was surprising to me. Um, uh, if you go up about seven miles, three-quarters of the mass of the atmosphere is about in the first seven miles, but they've got a line called the Kármán line. It's 62 miles, and that's kind of what they uh, commonly refer to as the, the boundary. But there's really no defined boundary. You know, the further up you go, the, the thinner it gets until eventually it just turns into um, outer space. Look at verse 6 through 8 again. God said this, Let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heaven from the waters of the earth. Now, this is an odd thing to me, right? And I think it's one of the things I had, understand, had trouble understanding as a kid because it's like, okay, I got water here on earth, which is rivers and seas and oceans and lakes, but water's in the heavens. I mean, I know there's rain up there, but is there, is there really that much water? I did a quick study on this. Did you know that at any moment the atmosphere contains, listen to this, 37.5 million billion gallons of water. That's above our heads right now around this earth. 37.5 million billion. That's enough water, if you brought it down to earth, it would cover the entire surface of the earth with an inch of rain. That's a lot of water over our heads. And that's exactly what the Bible said, that it separated the waters below and the waters above. And that's what our atmosphere does. Day three. Now, I mentioned earlier that at the end of day one, water covered the earth. Everybody remember that? So God has separated now the light from the darkness. He's installed an atmosphere. So we've got the waters in the heavens from the water here on earth. But I mentioned on day one that the fact that waters covered the earth was important. Well, here's why. Look at verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. Now, I want you to just imagine, if you can, for a moment, when he spoke those words, what happened. I mean, all of a sudden, things begin to change, right? Waters begin to rush off these mountains. These mountains begin to rise up. These valleys begin to fall. I mean, cataclysmic events are, are taking place. The, again, the land's pushing upwards, uh, producing... Can you imagine these chemical reactions, these minerals that are all being created as these pressures of these rocks are forming? The waters are moving, just scouring canyons and valleys uh, as it moves into the process of gathering itself into different seas and oceans. It is a staggering act of, cre of creation. Psalm 104 says this. We read a, a part of it earlier. I'll read the whole thing. He set the earth on its foundation so it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the places that you appointed for them. Just, an, just a cataclysmic event is occurring on, on, this, uh, on this day. Now here's why we point this out. You see, evolutionists, and we're going to talk more next week about uh, uh, geology and, and the age of the earth and things like that. But evolutionists claim, by the way, how many of you watch is Genesis history? Raise your hand. Good, got to go watch it. Is it worth watching? Yeah, very much worth watching. Go watch it. Um, 
If you, if you look at the earth, you got all these strata, right? Go to Grand Canyon. How many of y'all been to the Grand Canyon? And you just see all these strata, just, just, just like layers of a cake. It literally looks like somebody baked a cake. And geologists claim that this is all old, but they make this huge assumption, a huge assumption, and it's something called uniformitarianism. Okay, it's a big, long word. And what this means, it's a presupposition or an assumption that nothing has changed. In other words, the way things are today is the way things have always been. When they try to, try to figure things out, they look at the, 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 the chemical processes, the different things that are in place today, and they just say it's always been that way. Nothing has ever, nothing has ever changed. You see, in geology, they assume that the, the processes that are, that are in place today have always been in process or have always been in place since the beginning of time. And they believe if that's true, then billions of years is sufficient to account for all those different layers. Everybody with me? As long as nothing has changed over all these years. But you see, guys, the Bible says that's not true. The earth has not gone on in this uniform way since the beginning of time. There are two cataclysmic events that have occurred and affected the earth. The first one occurred, as we just said, right here um, on day three. When those mountains rose, those valleys sank, that water rushed. I mean, can you imagine what all went on? And then it happens years later again at the flood. So, so uniform, uniformitarianism is just not true. There, and by the way, go watch his Genesis history. They'll tell you, you look at those strata, that's exactly what a flood would do. That's exactly what rushing water would do. Is it would lay down those layers of sediment in strata. That's exactly what it would what it would do. There's a place in the Grand Canyon where water, where these rocks are bent. These formations of rocks are bent. And the only thing that can do that is heat, extreme heat, or water. Because water will soften it up and bend it. But when they test those rocks, there's no sign at all of any kind of heat. I mean, it's got to have been done by, by water. So, I mean, it, you just look at all this stuff and it's just, you just see the flood, the flood, the flood over and over and over again. But keep in mind, it's not just Noah's flood when this happened. It also happened on the first week of creation as well. Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And then these words are going to come up, And it was so. Now, that's the first time we see this phrase, but it's going to appear, appear five more times in the first chapter of Genesis. And it seems like a fairly mild phrase, but, it, but it's not. There's a lot more to those words. It, it means that those things were established, and it was so, and it will be that way to time eternal. In other words, God did this, and it was so, that means it's unchanging. When he said, when he said you know, when, when those waters separated, boom, it was done. And it wouldn't change, right? And it happened on day two, and it's still the same today. Verse 10, And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now, before God called light good, by the way, he didn't call the atmosphere good. He's not, he's not used that term again until he gets here. And he says it now about the entire creation. Now, why would he do that? I want you to notice in the first three days, God is getting things ready. It's like he's preparing things. 
He actually creates three separations that turn the chaos into cosmos or the formlessness into form. He separates light from darkness, he separates the heavens from the earth, and he separates water from land. He's preparing the house, so to speak, for life. Everybody with me? So you'll see that. There's six days, but the first three, he's getting everything ready. And then he begins to create life. So, so those three separations have, have been done now. The, the earth is now a suitable place. It's got light and day. Photosynthesis is, is getting ready to take place. There's an atmosphere. Uh, there's, the water's been separated from the land. It's all ready for life. And God says it's good. It's good. In other words, it's conducive to life. It's, 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 it's ready for life. And now he moves into the second phase, verses 11 through 13. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetations, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit which is in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. So the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kind, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. So what God does here is he basically brings forth vegetation, and in his, he divides it into two groups. One group he calls plants, and the other group he calls trees. And these are two different Hebrew words in Genesis 1. And what's the difference? It's a pretty simple difference. The difference is the plant has the seed in itself. The, the, the tree has the seed in its fruit. Okay, so that's, that's, that's the difference. And he explains that very quickly uh, in the scripture there. So as soon as the earth is ready for life, God says this is good and he begins to create life. He creates life in its simplest form. He creates plants and he creates trees. Now these are, of course, intended to be food for the life that he's going to create next, for the animals, for the birds, and of course for the, uh, for the humans. Now notice he creates these plants with the seeds. Now this is a... This is a decree for fertility. Now this is, I, I want you to see how, we talked about this in the introduction. There's, remember how many creation stories we said there are? There's probably like 200 of them. And you see them in the Middle East, you see them in the South America, you see them all over the place. There's all kind of creation stories. But this story is so different uh, from any of those. And one of these is when it comes to fertility. For example, in Canaan, when, when, they came, when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they're about to go into Canaan, we all know the Canaanites worshipped a god called Baal. Everybody with me? Y'all have all heard Baal? Well, in Canaan, they had a story. And what the story was this. At the end of the year, Baal would always be captured by the god Mot, which was basically death. And he would be taken away and, and, and to this place called the Abyss. And, of course, all the crops would die. And that was their explanation for the crops dying because Baal had been captured by the god Mot. But in the spring, the goddess Annette would come rescue him and Baal would reappear. And guess what would happen with the crops? They'd start to grow again. That was their, that was their reasoning behind why crops died, and, you know, why you planted, and why you harvested. It was all because Baal was captured and then he was released and the next year he'd be captured and then... Annette, Annette rescued him, and it just thing went on and on and on. Ancient religions had all these kind of weird rituals, but not Genesis. Not Genesis. You see, in contrast to those accounts, Genesis just says, God puts these plants out here, He gathers these seeds together, and He just says, Earth, go produce vegetation. 
In other words, fertility is not something with, where the, it happens because the gods are fighting. It's a self-perpetuating process that God puts in place, and he says, and it was so. See those words, and it was so. In other words, I put this in place, and this will be that way year after year after millennia after millennia after millennia, not because any gods are fighting, but just because God said, let it be. Completely different from anything else that you see. Look at verse 11 through 12 again. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit bearing trees, which is their seed. And then he says it again, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit, seed, 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 seed. What's, what's the big deal with seeds here? Okay. Well, there's something very big here. See, it lets us know that these plants are created and they're capable of reproduction, or reproducing themselves. That's the whole point. Listen, if the, there's never an argument in the Bible of which came first, the chicken or the egg. It was the chicken. Which came first, the tree or the seed? The tree. God didn't create seeds in the ground, and then the seeds brought forth the tree. No, he created the trees and the plants, and they already had these seeds in them pre-programmed to reproduce. Okay, I mean, this is really important. See, you don't, you don't start with seeds and then progress. You start with fully mature vegetation. See, if you'd have been there on that day and, and there's a tree and you would have cut that tree down, it would have had rings in it. Do you understand? It, it would have looked 100 years old. It would have looked 200 years old or whatever the case may be. It was a fully mature tree with fruit that already had seeds in it that's ready to reproduce. And that's going to have... See, I believe that when God created, He created things fully mature, ready to reproduce. He didn't create Adam as a baby, and then Adam had to grow up. He created Adam as a full-grown man. He created a full-grown tree. He created full-grown roses. He created full-grown mountains. Fully mature. When Adam looked at the night sky, he saw a star that was theoretically millions of years away, but it wasn't. It had just been created a couple days earlier. See, God creates everything ready to go, and he tells us this right here. I've created the trees with seeds ready to reproduce because that's what he chose to do. By the way, you think I'll give you an example of this. Somebody pointed this out. I thought this was cool. You remember Jesus at the wedding of Cana? He goes and he says, fill those water pots with water, and they did. Now he said, dip it out and take it. You know how long it takes at a very minimum to make wine? Four weeks. It takes four weeks for the fermentation process it took four seconds, four milliseconds with Jesus. He says, take that water, and they served it, and it was fully formed wine. And not just any wine, it was what? It was the best wine, right? See, that's God. That's what he does, man. He doesn't, he doesn't need, oh, I need evolution to take over. No, he says, let it be. And it is, because that's because he, he's God. And when it's done, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's the best. That's what he that's what he does. Let's go back to verses 11 and 12 again. God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, and he says it again, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now here we see the introduction of a phrase, each according to its kind, that will be repeated ten more times in Genesis. I mean, this is not the first time. It's going to be ten more times. And what this does is it indicates the limitations of variation on this earth. 
A plant or a tree can only bring forth something of its own kind. It, it cannot, you know, uh, uh, an apple tree cannot produce prunes. It just doesn't work that way, right? It, you, it can only reproduce something of its own kind. Listen, there are wonderful variations, and we've seen that down through time, right? Um, Implanted in each of those trees, each of those plants, is a seed that has DNA in it, has genetic material in it, that is capable of reproducing itself. And by the way, in the 1960s when Crick and the other guy discovered DNA and they looked at it, they just basically reinforced what the Bible had said 6,000 years ago. They, right? I mean, that's exactly what we know with DNA. It can only reproduce its kind. Now, like I said, there are wonderful variations. I was, if you watch that Genesis account, they talk about a lion and a tiger and a, and a cheetah and a cougar, but they're all what? They're all cats. Great, wonderful variations. In fact, if you just watch a, a, a lion or a tiger, they look like your house cat. They move like your house cat. They play like your house cat. They don't eat like your house cat, hopefully, a little bit different, but, but you get the point, right? They're all cats. Well, that's, the, that's these wonderful horizontal variations that you can have all these different kinds, but there ain't no vertical. You don't never see a, a, a lion having a beaver. I mean, it just don't work that way, right? I mean, that's, and God said it at the very beginning, each according to its kind. And they've discovered DNA and they say, yep, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. I've raised sheep and goats and, and you can't let them, you can't put them together. Because if you do, they'll have babies and those babies won't survive. Because the, 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 the compare, and by the way, they're of a kind even. They're close together. And they'll tell you, don't, don't, let, them, don't let them mate because if you do, they'll have all kinds of problems and they won't live. Because over time, they've just, They've, they've branched far enough away from each other that if you let them get together... See, mutations never make you stronger. Those things always downgrade any species at all. It's, I mean, it's just common sense. But yet, well, anyway, we won't go there again. So, to say somehow that all living things come from some common ancestry is refuted right here in the Bible by that phrase, after its kind. And by the way, it's refuted by science. Life can only reproduce on the basis of the genetic code that it has within it. And God said that thousands and thousands of years ago. Day 4, verses 14 through 19. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day and the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made great, two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now, again, we saw that light was created on day one, but here on day four, it's almost like the light has been reassigned. God says, okay, from this day forward, I'm going to reassign the light to the sun and the stars and, of course, the moon, which reflects the, the sun. Now, the text gives us three reasons why God did it. doesn't leave us guessing why He did it. It actually tells us why He did it. Look at verse 17. 
And God set them in expanse of the heaven to, number one, give light, number two, to rule, and number three, to separate. There's your three reasons that he did it, to give light, to rule, and to, to separate. First of all is to give life. As we said earlier, the stars and the sun, they're not the creators of light. Right? There's no reason to worship them. They are, they've been created by God who, by the way, can give light apart from them. We, we mentioned that earlier, 1 John 1, 5. God is light. And it's almost like God in the beginning says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to have three days where I'm the light. Or, I, or, I, or however he did it. But he doesn't need those sun and the stars. And by the way, he'll prove that again in the new heavens and the new earth. So here on day four, God makes a decision. He decides to create these celestial objects. He calls them the sun, the moon, and the stars. And he assigns them to be bearers of light. And by the way, he said, and it was so, which means from that day to this, nothing's changed. They're, they're still there. They're still these bearers of light. Uh, we've already had the separation of light and, day, uh, light and darkness in day one. But what God is doing here is he's assigning that responsibility to the sun and to the moon. He said, okay, from this day forward, this separation is going to occur because of, these, uh, because of these. And by the way, that's how it is from our standpoint, right? When we look up, that's, we, we understand that's the difference between day and night. The third one I want to look at real quickly is to rule. He says to rule or to dominate. Look at verse 14 again. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day and night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days, and for years. Now listen, did you know that everything we do basically is around the sun and the moon? Have you thought about this later, lately? The, time it take, the day, one day, is the time it takes the earth to rotate with respect to the sun. Right? That the earth rotates one time with respect to the sun, that's a day. A month is the time it takes the moon to go once around the earth. That's how we define a month. A year is a time it takes the earth to orbit the sun. So when we talk about days, months, years, it's all about the sun and the moon. That's how we measure our, our time. Now, by the way, we said this on, day, on the introduction. A week has nothing to do with the sun and the moon and the stars. So it's this crazy thing. You can go anywhere across the, the earth, across the planet, in any time, and people have always organize their lives around weeks. Go back to the Mesopotamians. Go back to the Sumerians. Go back to the Egyptians. They had weeks. But it doesn't come from sun, moon, and stars. What does it come from? It comes from the Genesis account. We said that last week. That's where we get the week from is because God created on six days and on the seventh day he rested. That's where we get our week. That's the He set that pattern for us. And by the way, that's why he did it in six days and not six million years or six milliseconds because he's setting a pattern for us for eternity that we should, uh, should follow. Again, that comes directly from Genesis. By the way, seasons. What about spring, uh, summer, winter, fall? They're caused by what? The tilt of the earth uh, in, uh, uh, either from the sun or towards the sun or away from the sun. That's where our seasons come from. Again, they're, they're critical for... The, the, for life, for planting, growing crops, um, everything, right? So, so I don't, we don't think about this, but do you understand how these celestial uh, objects rule our lives? They dictate to us when we work and when we don't, when we're awake, when we sleep, when we plant, when we harvest. 
right? I mean, you got to watch, right? And the, the time of day, everything's, I'll meet you at 4 o'clock. Well, that's, we got a certain amount of day. I mean, everything, the, these objects literally dictate or rule our life just as God ordained they would do on day four. All right? Hey, next week uh, we will continue with day five, day six, and day seven um, with the history of creation part two. If you have not got Netflix, uh, as I said, sign up for it for a free seven-day trial and then go watch Genesis in, is Genesis history and then cancel it, okay? Um, that's perfectly legitimate. It's not illegal, unethical, or immoral. Don't worry about any of that. Let's pray. Father,